0: Last week, we hit kind of the core topic we've been talking about for like, I don't know, ever, right? Which is Jesus first, everything else second. Seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and trusting that everything else will be given to us as we need it. Okay, there's a real uh, thrust here throughout scripture that we need to beat home until it like takes anchor in our hearts and our souls. And when it does, we will see visible, transformative change in our lives. And then as a church, we'll see that visible, transformative change corporately in the expression that we have here. Okay, so last week we talked about the, the scripture that says, for those who come to him, come to God, must first believe that he is and that he is the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Right? And so believing that he is requires a deep dive into his self-revelation. Now I'm not saying anything big. This is just common sense. We don't even need the scriptures to like agree on these points. Like if you want to know who someone is, go to them and ask them who they are. What do you like? What do you not like? Right? Like in our culture, in most cultures, we call that a dating process. What do you do when you want to get to know someone? You spend time with them, asking them questions, learning about who they are. It's raining on the inside here. And what God has done is he's literally written us a book of his self-revelation to us. And so if we're going to believe that he is... Right? And last week I differentiated between believing that a deity exists is very different from what the author of Hebrews is saying here. That you must believe that he is. And if that sentence was extended, that he is who he says he is. And the only way you're going to be able to believe that is to first understand what he showed us and told us about himself. This is why the scripture becomes our authoritative source on the faith and who God is. And then the other key point was that the scriptures are so valuable because they testify of Christ. They tell us and point us to who he is and tell us who he is because knowing him is eternal life. And that's all wrapped up in this concept of believing that he is. It's the full picture. It's how we know we're worshiping the one true God and not a golden calf that we've created and named it God. And the second part is that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And we nailed down what it looks like to diligently seek him, as opposed to a casual seeking of him. Please, guys. All right. So this casually seeking him, which is what we wrestle with here, And what I think is a big part in the Western culture is we have a casual pursuit of Jesus because an actual diligent pursuit of him would require actually carrying a cross. It would require actually dying to things we want. It would require giving things up and putting him first. We can casually pursue Jesus like we casually pursue any of a hundred different things. But the things we diligently pursue are the things we truly believe we need in our heart like provision right it's always there at the center we will diligently pursue jobs businesses careers the things that provide for what we believe we need and then even beyond that what we want and then we casually pursue the things we think we need to do to be good people and in Christian language that means being part of the church helping serve in different places when you can and that attitude just alone is, is one that should be foreign in the church for those who have truly encountered Christ, for those who have truly encountered just how much we've been forgiven of, how much he's done, how central he needs to be. Right? It's, it's so central that it pushes us out of the center and we begin taking orbit around Christ instead of trying to fit him in around us and our lives and our desires. It's just the starting point. There's no way around it. You cannot serve two masters. You cannot be a disciple of Christ if anyone other than Christ is at the center. And even then, we've heard that message for so long in the church that we've we've readjusted what that even means to have Christ in the center. And I'm telling you, we have a lot of work to do in order to first recognize the golden calves we created and then destroy those golden calves. But it takes a lot of pain and a lot of suffering, and willing to lay precious things down, and willing to watch them die, and even more so, being willing to be the ones that kill those things because there's something of greater value you see that belongs in that spot. So, I was reading this week in my devotional time, I was like, I'm going to plow through Matthew in these next couple days because I just, redemptive history has been going on and been going through the Old Testament. I was like, I want to. I want to just plow through the gospels again. I want a fresh hit of Christ and who he is in a very direct way. I want red letters is what I was after. And so I was just I'm just plowing through it and I got to Matthew 6, which is like the epicenter of the gospels in my perspective. Like this is Jesus's core message. It's where his disciples start picking it up. He's doing his big sermon to everyone 5 6 7. And I get to the end of 6. And I'm about to switch over to seven, but the last statement just stuck out to me so much. And I was like, I've read this scripture a bazillion times. It's almost like the last statement of the good stuff in my mind. <clears throat> but it, it stuck out and it started, it really, really, I had already started going through a few verses in seven when I was like, I need to stop and go back. And I just stopped and I closed it. I was like, I just need to meditate and pray and think about what it is that is standing out right now. This idea that that Jesus tells them, do not worry about tomorrow, right? Tomorrow has enough worries, enough problems, enough trouble for itself. I was like, what an interesting statement. He is not telling them, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow's fine. It stood out to me that he was like, tomorrow has more than enough trouble for you to deal with tomorrow, Deal with the stuff going on today. And it was this real focus that he had on it, where he literally says, therefore, and the part that he's saying, therefore, afterwards is kind of what gives it the context, but therefore, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. The end. (laughs) That's how he wrapped up the message. And for a couple months before this, quick backstory insight, I have been doing things very uncharacteristic for myself and taking huge risks in my life. Big risks, bigger risks than I've taken in a very long time, like bigger risks than since the day I got married, right? Like from that on was the biggest, now these are the biggest risks. But the reason why I keep taking big risks is because that risk paid off. Right, Melanie? (laughs) Taking huge risks, like in my mind, outside my comfort zone by a couple miles. But it's been progressive, and i felt like God has been pushing me to expand this kind of realm in my life, to step out, take risks, put some greater trust in God, not just in rock-solid promises where he has promised, hey, if you do this, everything will work out great. But more so, like, take risks that may not work out great that may fall flat. You may turn around and say, wow, I really wish I never did that. But trusting him in that, which is a whole nother level, right, of expanding in my trust in who God is and in my life and the plans that, whatever risks I do take, as long as I'm doing them in full acknowledgement of Christ and doing my best to trust and follow his leading, that it is not gonna be a risk that will be able to derail me from the mission he has for me and that I I wanna accomplish. In that, there's a lot of stress and struggle, fears, plenty of opportunity to, to panic, doubt, shrink back. And one of the scriptures I had leaned on, I don't know, maybe two months back and started reading it, I woke up and I was constantly complaining about how stressed I was about these risks. And I was like, I don't... Doubt God's going to always provide for us, but like if He wanted us to take these risks for expansion and and being able to do more, then it'd be really nice if it paid off. And I was stressing, like life will be very uncomfortable if these risks don't pay off, it'll be very uncomfortable for a long time. And I just had this verse that kept kind of settling. Instead of like stressing and thinking about those things, I just started repeating. Uh, out loud in the middle of the kitchen didn't matter who was around. This is the day that the Lord has made and I'm going to rejoice and just be glad in it I'm more than a half a million dollars in debt when I was when I had money in the bank yesterday Doesn't matter today. This is the day the Lord's made I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it and I just started saying it whenever I felt myself beginning to Be a little complainy boy and I said it out loud, and one time I said it out loud to Melanie and Sykes, I really like that. And I was like, I know it's so true, right? It's just what we gotta focus on. And it's been part of the progression. So that's what this is this is building on in my life. So you can see why this stood out to me specifically, but more so where I see it. And I started looking through scripture and like, wow, this is a resounding message. That we're not to worry about tomorrow. Like tomorrow's going to have problems, going to have plenty of things to worry about. We start robbing what God has from us today because we're worrying about what may or might not happen tomorrow, the next day, or the next day. And I was looking into it and realizing, man, this verse, just this one verse, which by the way, is right on the tail, so I want to read it to you so you understand where it comes from. Jesus just finished saying this. He says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink. Full stop right there, obey that and you're good. But he takes the time to elaborate and drill down. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky, they don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor a spin, thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is super temporary, it's here today, it's gone tomorrow, and it's thrown into the furnace, won't he do much more for you? You of little faith? Like he's saying, like, guys, you guys... The fact that you don't trust that God will provide your basic needs demonstrates that there's little faith here, right? And Jesus is saying that as a loving rebuke to say, you need to start actually believing. And he says, so don't worry, saying what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? And this is his comparison. For the Gentiles, meaning those who don't believe in God, they eagerly seek all these things. This thought, he didn't say, don't worry about what yachts you'll be able to cruise on for vacations tomorrow and what mansions you'll be able to build the next day, which Ferraris you can drive in a week. He's talking about the most basic things. Food, clothing, shelter. Shelter the three most basic things in humanity for all of humanity ever. And he's saying the Gentiles eagerly seek after all those things, which we would expect. He's not even saying that's wrong. I want to stress this. The emphasis here in the text is on the eagerly part. He's saying the Gentiles eagerly seek after all these things he says, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And again, that one statement was meant to be a comforting statement. Your heavenly Father knows you need these things. Do you know what my children, as long as they've been alive, as far as I know, maybe they'll tell me I'm wrong, have never had to eagerly seek after? Clothes, food, or shelter. They don't even know what it means to need those things. They don't even know what it means to want those things because they don't have it. I am constantly having to drill into them that there are people on the earth that don't have the life you have, guys. Stop complaining, saying you're starving because breakfast was two hours ago. Right? Like, that's a constant drill. It's from the opposite direction, but because they have Good parents, and in this example, a a good father that knows what they need, they've never known they need them. They just trust it'll be there. And therefore, they're concerned with so many other things, right? We're always like, man, what it would be like to just be a child again. Adulting is hard. But when did adulting become hard? (laughs) Only when we let it, when culture came pressing in, when we stopped coming as a child and we started saying, oh, we we need these things, this stuff's hard to come by. But there's some disconnect that we lost along the way because God never stopped saying, your heavenly Father knows you need these things as a statement of comfort. But he doesn't even stop there, he goes on. He says, your heavenly Father knows you need these things. The Gentiles are eagerly seeking after them. Don't do that. Your heavenly Father knows you need them. In contrast, you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all those things that the Gentiles are eagerly seeking after will be provided for you. Therefore, here's the therefore, back to my main point. Do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And I was like, man, that almost sounds like a reversal. Like he's saying, don't worry about tomorrow because today has plenty to worry about. Doesn't it come off that way? But when you read the context, that's the furthest thing from what he's saying. He's not saying today has plenty to worry about. He's saying, today is the day I've asked you to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I will provide for what you need today. Don't worry about tomorrow, when tomorrow comes, I'll provide for what you need tomorrow. And the next day, I'll do the same thing. And I'll keep doing the same thing. And the reason why I'm trying to assure you of this, saying, don't worry, I got that part of the mission covered. So that you can focus on the part I've asked you to focus on which is seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And this statement, because it addresses the worry part for the day and tomorrow, really struck me. And I was like, man, I am worrying about things that may or may not happen. And if they don't happen, what a waste and what disobedience? And if they do happen, what a waste, what disobedience? Because God has promised, even if my risks fall flat on their face, he will still p- take care of those things that I need. The only thing that I would be concerned about would be the luxury and the easiness of it. And that's what it drilled down to. And I needed to stop worrying about whether tomorrow would be easy or not. You see the difference? I genuinely don't feel like I have a concern that God won't provide for us. Really don't. Walking with him for almost 30 years now, I feel like that truth is kind of firmly settled in my heart. So it's never that. It's more so that I'm worried that tomorrow is going to be a boatload harder than today is. And I'm like, God, haven't we progressed past that part? Like, I lived for a solid decade where I was like, I have to trust God for so much. And I'm like, now I want to get to the part where I can be a source, right? A resource. And having to say, God, not my will be yours be done, but you'll provide. My point is this. This passage is assuring us not to worry about tomorrow tomorrow so that you can be free to focus on the mission today. Meaning this, you got bills due tomorrow, don't worry. Tomorrow has more than enough to worry about tomorrow. It will worry about itself. God asks you to be generous today. You got things that need to be done tomorrow, don't worry about them today. Do what God's asked you to do today. It's really a much simpler perspective now. I'm not I'm not dumbing things down to pretend tomorrow doesn't exist doesn't exist But I am saying that this the scripture doesn't say don't think about tomorrow Don't plan for tomorrow Says don't worry about tomorrow There's so many other parts in scripture it says hey man has their plans, but it's the Lord that orders their steps right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. These are things you can trust. These are things you can rely on. God is saying he's going to do that. So you don't have to worry about tomorrow. There's a freedom to diligently pursue him and his kingdom when we embrace that. This is repeated in Proverbs 27:1, it says, Don't do that. In James 4:13, look at this is what it says in James 4:13. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. And James is like, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring. <clears throat> what your life will be tomorrow. For you are a bit of smoke that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So for the person who knows to do good and doesn't do it, it is sin. Man, it feels like so confusing. Unless you just think about it for like even one minute. If you just stop and thought about it for a minute, it starts to make sense in the context. It's clear he's not saying, don't think about tomorrow and make plans. He's talking about the heart attitude. Who's at the center of your plans? That's why he addresses it as arrogance. That's why he calls it sin. Now listen to what he's saying. Come now, it's a, it's a rebuke saying, come, come here, listen. You who say, this is what you're gonna do and you got your plans and you're gonna make a profit and you're gonna do this for the next year, you got your life mapped out. His response is, you don't even know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be like tomorrow. Oh, arrogant one. Your life's a vapor, you're gonna be here today and gone tomorrow and you're planning like there's some significance to your big plans. Instead, what you should say, if it's the Lord's will. That's his breaking point. He then repeats, like I'll I'll paraphrase it. What you should be saying, if the Lord wills, we'll go and do this and make a lot of money in the city. You see, he's not saying you can't plan to go somewhere and establish for a year and make a profit. He's just saying it should be in the, the context of the Lord is at the center, and you said if this is what the Lord wants of me, I'll do that. If it's not what the Lord wants of me, I won't do that, and I don't know what tomorrow comes unless he specifically directs me towards something. This to me is, is the centerpiece of the casual versus the diligent pursuit this explanation of it that's why he says but as it is we boast in our arrogance and it's not this we're not boasting against God intentionally we do it passively in our actions in our mindsets in the things we do that demonstrate what we truly believe we live as if God's will is the suggestion and our will and desires are the Lord And we go and we do things and we ask the Lord to bless what we do. Instead of first saying, I will do what the Lord's will is. And we build our lives around it and we think we're starting in a good place. And before you know it, the church, the body, Christ, his mission, his purposes in your life become these periphery things revolving around all your ideas and plans oftentimes sending around this golden calf that we worship and call jesus because we haven't taken the time to truly submit die let all these cultural worldly filters fall off so we can see christ who he is and what he's really asking of us now i want to show you this theme in scripture that jesus is drilling down so we can truly rest on this promise that we don't have to worry about tomorrow Okay, there's a bunch. In Matthew 6, 11, Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray. Now, this isn't just some daily devotional prayer book with some suggestions on what prayer could be. This is God in the flesh instructing his most important followers how to pray. We should pay attention to that. And he gives us a structure and themes which, in this that resonate the heart attitude of a person who would boldly and humbly come before the king of heaven and earth and make requests. So Jesus says this. In this prayer, give us this day our daily bread. Right in the center of it. This is where James gets his teachings from guys this is where all the Apostles and the Apostles teaching come from the teachings of Christ who at the center of his prayer his instructional prayer says you should be asking the Lord each day for your daily provision and then trusting that when you ask the father for bread he won't give you a stone It's just, this is the the perfect harmony of scriptures and the consistency of its teaching. In Ezekiel 16, I mean, Exodus 16, 4, there's this whole teaching on manna. And God instructs them, take the manna that you need for the day. He says, do not store up for the extra day. There will be more bread tomorrow, I promise. And those who didn't believe stored it up And when they woke up, it was breeding worms and stinking like rotting food. This is the demonstration of this truth that God has always been after. All the way from the beginning. Even when God kicks Adam and Eve out of the garden, he demonstrates in his mercy an act of provision and provides for them. Even in the curses, he provides for them with this promise. And it's echoed throughout Abraham where Abraham is promised provision in great abundance and throughout scriptures when the exodus is happening they're in the wilderness and god continue promise continues to provide for them day by day and you know what it tells them that he provided supernaturally manna on the ground and quail from the skies and water from rocks like all these supernatural demonstrations and you know when all of that stopped when they reached the promised land because his provision shifted and now it was a provision that hopefully they'd learned God would always provide for. And now they were given abundance and wealth to become a source and a provider and to take care of things. And this theme throughout scripture continues throughout. Of it. It's always about the day, seizing the day, taking the day. Paul stressing that today is the day of salvation, right? Seek the Lord while he can be found. That's in Isaiah. It says, seek the Lord while he may be found and call him while he is near. Why is God prophetically telling Israel and his people to do that? Seek the Lord while while he may be found. Is there a time when he can't be found? I know it feels like a trick question, right? But we have to first stop and say, wait, God actually said these words. Seek the Lord while he may be found and call, him, call on him while he is near. There are times where God is doing stuff. Where God has drawn near for his purposes. And throughout history, it's always an invitation. He draws near in order to invite Do you understand? He draws near in the garden, and he invites Adam to walk with him. He draws near on the mountain, and he invites them to come near to him. He draws near in a burning bush, and he invites Moses to come and see. He draws near in a tabernacle, and he says, come, follow me. He draws near as Jesus, and he says, come, follow me. And there are times and seasons throughout all of Scripture where God has done this throughout His people's history. And He still does it today. And when we recognize that God has come and drawn near, it is Him saying, Come, seek me while I may be found. While I am here, draw near to me. It's an opportunity, it's a window that can be missed. It can be missed. Think about this. Imagine, and this is just something I think about, imagine you're one of the Pharisees that gets saved post-Jesus ascension, because that happened. It tells us in Acts that many of the religious leaders, Pharisees and priests, came to the Lord. The same ones that while he was present... Rejected him, in best case, questioned and didn't quite believe and missed out on it. In the TV show The Chosen, they do a good job. It's it's not in the scriptures, they add to it to try to capture this idea. And they show one of the one of the Pharisees and rabbis who came this close to becoming a disciple of Christ, but couldn't let go of everything that he had accumulated and owned and, and his position and his roles that close and the scriptures tell us afterwards that he was one that became a follower of christ imagine the level of regret that you missed out while he was near that you passed by that you didn't go all in in that moment and you watched those who did And you see what God is doing in their life and through them now. They're preaching. They're raising the dead. They're healing the sick. They're seeing 3,000, 5,000 people come to Christ in one message. The Holy Spirit is descending in power and falling on people. You're preaching Jesus. And your testimony was he drew near and I missed him. I did not respond in kind. That is something that should be fearful, something that should cause us to stand in really godly fear, because what would keep us from doing that? Hesitation, fear of loss, having other plans other than what God would want. So that when God does draw near, we're not ready to respond. We're not ready to shift. and We're not willing to change things up. We're not willing to lay things down and die. And that's the scary part. And right now, we're, we're in a place where God has shown up. We know that. That's undeniable. Anyone who is here, who experienced it, you know. You can see the fruit of it. God has, has come close. He has drawn near. And we don't know how long that will last. We can hope that it will be forever, but history tells us otherwise. Maybe this is the time it lasts forever. I hope. But I'm not taking that chance. I am shifting everything. I am taking every chance I can take. I am changing perspectives. I am looking at things I've never looked at before. I am willing to change and shift and move as much as my stinking flesh allows me to, by the grace of God, to do so and it's a fight, and it's death, and it's dying, and it's laying things down, and it's changing, and it's hard, and it's worth it. I want to read this last verse. It's in Ecclesiastes. It's one of these book of wisdoms. It says this, it's a short little thing, but it says a lot. It says, One who watches the wind will not sow. Now, he's talking to a very agricultural people, people who survive through farming and uh you know planting crops, sowing, reaping, harvesting. And he's saying, one who watches the wind will not sow. And the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. That's just one short statement. He who watches the wind will not sow, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. And the the wisdom that's being communicated here is this, that there were farmers and those who wanted to wait for the perfect conditions so that they didn't lose any seed, so that they wouldn't lose any crop, so that they could do it perfectly, and that these people would wait too long and miss their opportunities. And Solomon is warning them, one who watches the wind Oh, is it a little too windy to do it? Is it gonna rain? What's the weather like? They missed their opportunity because they're afraid of what might happen. They waited for the perfect conditions and therefore they missed the opportunity to sow what they needed to sow. And therefore there was no harvest at the end. And then he says on the other end, and the one who looks at the clouds will not reap. The person who's too afraid that if they go out there and start reaping the wind, the rains will blow their wheat away, blow their barley, or whatever it is that they were harvesting that the wind could impact, says, you'll never reap. In other words, what he's saying is, just do it <laughs> in a nutshell. He's saying, stop waiting for perfect situations. Step out and do what you know you need to do. Do what you know you need to do so that there will be a harvest. There won't be a harvest if you don't step out and sow. If you don't do the diligent work of pursuing and working and striving and and bleeding and, and busting your butt and sacrificing and laying things down and changing and being willing to flex and say, if the Lord wills, tomorrow will look like that. But today, I know what he wills for me. I can do what the Lord wants for me today because I know what he wants for me today. He's told me right here. What does that look like as it expresses? Pursue Jesus. Let the Holy Spirit lead you. Be part of a community that can pray and listen together and be able to instruct each other. You have to strike while the iron is hot. That's what the statement means. It's that imagery from the welding, right? People making swords or, weapon, or spheres spheres, they, they have to put this iron, which is one of the strongest substances on the earth. But if you get it hot enough, it becomes pliable and flexible. But it only stays that way for a very short window. Like very short. And so, while it's that glowing red hot, like that that type of pliability, you have to strike and strike. And I don't know if you've ever seen scenes of welders. They're sweaty. They're sweaty because they have to work in a very hot environment, right? And there's strength because they have to smash. It is hard work to move that. And this is what God's asking us for our own lives to step in and do this. And so the statement at the end here that I, I, I wrote down in big letters was strike while the iron is hot, because this is a way that we might be able to capture what the scriptures have all just said beforehand, which is seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him while he is near. Give us today our daily bread. Ask the Lord what he wants from you today. Don't worry about tomorrow because you don't have to so that today you can do everything you need to to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and what he wants and what will please him. This is at the center of it all. What does that look like for us right now? It looks like assessing our lives once again until we see change. Okay, We're stubborn people. We're this sword that the Lord is trying to bang on and he is turning up the temps. He has drawn near to extend the invitation to us to come close, to come draw near, to walk into the place where he will begin to produce the change we say we want. We say we want it until we realize, oh, that change requires a cross and it requires willingly stretching your arms out and it requires you saying do what your will is to do, Lord, regardless of what my will is. I've had these plans, and this is what I want to do, but you know what I didn't do? I didn't say if the Lord wills beforehand. I was arrogant enough to just think this was right without even consulting you and asking you what you wanted. Forgive me, God. Let me reassess my plans. Let me reassess my my future, my school plans, my work plans, my business plans, my family plans, my church plans, my mission plans. Let me just reassess them in light of you and what it is you're asking of me. And maybe you're going to ask me to do something that comes with a lot of discomfort and a lot of unknowns and a lot of what might seem like going backwards in life. <clears throat> but sometimes that going backwards in life is God course correcting you. Sometimes we've gone too far into the self comfort and the own pursuits. And going backwards to a place that seems like you're going backwards is realigning with the will and the Word of God so that He can then use you in ways you've probably not ever imagined him doing so. I don't even have to ask. I know that the majority of us here have probably not led someone to the Lord and discipled them into the ways of Christ recently. I'm not saying none of you. Some of you have. I know it but we get so wrapped up in our plans and our lives and our 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 ideas and our missions we get so that we forget the first and foremost reason why God called you to himself if what you're doing is not being a light what are you doing what are you doing making money good for you it's going to burn like the rest of it What are you doing if what you're doing is not contributing to the witness of Christ on the earth today, now, the day of salvation, when he can be found? God has raised up his church for this reason and there will be judgment on his house to purify it so it will be able to carry out his mission. What if we instead before then responded to his rebuke and just said, no judgment needed, Lord. We hear, we listen. Do what you will. I think that would look different. It would start with prayer. Getting to a new place of prayer. If your life does not involve a consistent drive in your heart for getting before the Lord and seeking his face and seeking his word and praying and, and coming to a place where you're able to to look to the Lord to put everything else in context. This is why last week I started with it. I even wrote it down on the top, but I got distracted, but I wanted to start with this and say, guys, all of this starts with this. I look up to the mountains, right? And say, where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heavens and earth. He doesn't sleep or grow tired. He never slumbers, he's never weary. It's setting in context. David said this in Psalm 121. Maybe I'm mixing up the Psalms. Either way, David said this. Is it 121? Great. In 121 he says, I set my eyes to the mountains. And then he looks to the people, not not in a question, saying where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Why can I be confident in him? Because he's the maker of heaven and earth. You think I have to worry about if he's able to help me? So daily I set my eyes to the mountains where the Lord is. And I know that that's where my help comes from. So therefore, because of that overarching truth... I don't have to worry about tomorrow and I can just do what I've been asked to do today. Because whatever help I'll need to do this comes from the maker of heaven and earth himself. Which means you don't have time to pray because life, you just have too many other demands. It's a false belief. It's a false belief. You don't have time to get in the word for a little bit and spend time with God. False belief. All you're saying is there's something else more important than connecting with the very source that you need to do this day well. We're all guilty of it. We're all guilty of it. I know myself, I'll play this part of the message on repeat all week. But it's a false message that tells us other things are important. Oh, well, I don't have time. Get up earlier. I'm not a morning person. Stay up later. I fall asleep. Do it in the middle of the day. I have work. Stop working. Like trace your excuses down to the point where you can kill them and put them in the right context. But you can do it because your help is the one who created heaven and earth. So what does this look like? How do you adjust this? What do you change? Start by there, saying, God, how do I get to a place where daily I can say, if it's your will, I'm gonna do this and this. Please speak otherwise. But we won't do that until we get to the place of confidence that we know who he is. And that he's a rewarder of us when we diligently seek him. That when we go from a casual pursuit to a diligent seeking, he has promised to reward us with himself, with intimate relationship, with provision, with power, with words of affirmation and love and concrete effort and direction and confidence. And you will walk in a faith that causes other people to say, what do you have and how do I get it? That's all I have to say about that today. We'll worry about next week, next week. So let's just right now do that. Let's let's ask God, God, today, noontime, what is it for the rest of the day you have for me? And God, give me the grace to wake up in the morning tomorrow and ask the same question to avail myself to you regardless of what pressures I have from work or family or community or life, whatever thoughts I have in my mind that are pushing you out of it, whatever imaginary concerns called fear that have taken root, that you would show up in power, God, that I could look to you and say, you are my help today to do so. I can start whatever it is I need to get done a little bit later, God, to spend some time with you. I can wake up a little bit earlier to spend that time I need with you. And I'm going to diligently pursue you until these times become rewarding to me, until this time feeds me and fuels me in a way I can recognize that it's not just drudgery, but it becomes the reward of my day. But even if it doesn't, I will still diligently pursue you and your will, God. Let's just begin to pray into that and begin to worship him as we do that. Let's just give the Holy Spirit a few minutes to soak this into our hearts and begin to ask him to do this thing. Whatever it is in the message that stood out, whatever part pricked your heart, whatever the Holy Spirit enlightened, begin to meditate on that right now and ask the Lord to do it, to set it right and then set a commitment to begin to let him shift things and to make hard decisions and to ask others to help if you feel like it's too, too tall of a task. Hold me accountable. Look at my life with me. Tell me, what is it that needs to shift? I want this.